Welcome to Morning Commute, exploring advances in acute myeloid leukemia, frontline care of patients with FLT3 ITD. In this episode, Managing FLT3 Treatment-Related Adverse Events in Patients with AML, Dr. Harry Erba and Dr. Justin Watts look at this drug class, how they are used in AML, and managing any treatment-related adverse events. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Senkyo. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Erba is a professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Watts is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology and is chief of the leukemia section at the University of Miami in Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Erba will begin the discussion. Welcome back, Justin. In our last podcast, we had a fairly in-depth discussion about FLT3 and FLT3 ITD, the importance of testing our AML patients, what it means for prognosis. The good news is not only uh, are there treatments targeting FLT3 ITD, but there are three of them. Mitostorin, that's approved in combination with intensive therapy for patients um, getting uh, seven and three, followed by hydocytarabine consolidation. Um, for FLT3 ITD and FLT3 TKD mutated disease. Giltaritinib as a single agent approved in FLT3 mutated AML, that's relapsed refractory following prior therapies, and with the latest FDA approval, Quizartinib, which has been approved uh, for adults with FLT3 ITD mutated AML that's newly diagnosed in combination with seven and three chemotherapy consolidation, and up to 36 cycles um, of um, maintenance um, or continuation therapy. But I think there are a number of really important points to discuss um, and and maybe to uh, help uh, allay some of the confusion around what's published and what's been approved. And let me start with um, uh, the dosing of the FLT3 therapies. And I'm really going to focus in this dis- part of the discussion on quizartinib as, as the new drug. We have, we have a lot of experience dosing um, mitostorin, 50 milligrams twice daily, um, days 8 through um, 21, um, with in- intensive chemotherapy or consolidation. But how about with quizartinib? So I mentioned earlier that in, in the clinical trials that were done and in quantum first, the dose of quizartinib was 40 milligrams once daily, days 8 through 21, following induction and following the high dose RSC consolidation. And it was 60 milligrams per um, uh, flat dose, single dose a day during continuation. Uh, what I didn't mention is actually you ramp up the dose during continuation from 30 to up to 60. However, when the FDA approved quizartinib under its, under its trade name from the sponsor, they um, carefully pointed out that the amount of the actual quizartinib in those 40 and 60 milligram pills was less. And so they um, decided, uh, the sponsor decided to 
create two pills that would, when given together, given uh, together or uh, two doses, two pills a day, would come up to the dose of quizartinib that was in the clinical trial. So there's a 17.7 milligram uh, tablet and a 26.5 milligram tablet. Basically, the way to remember this is that the sponsor made two strengths. One of the, the, the tablets, the 17.7 milligrams, is meant to be used during in cons induction consolidation. And the other uh, tablet, 26.5 milligrams, is, is meant to be used during the continuation phase. And the full dose in both of those settings is two tablets. Now, why have it divided into two tablets? Why not make a, sim a single tablet? Well, because in the clinical trial, um, doctors were allowed to use other drugs that could um, uh, inhibit CYP3A4, and quizartinib is a substrate for CYP3A4. So, of, of course, here the uh, concern would be uh, toxicity uh, when using a FLT3 inhibitor. Uh, many of us uh, believe in the use of the strong CYP3A4 inhibitor, posaconazole, an antifungal. Uh, antibiotic during induction and maybe consolidation therapy. And so if you were to use a strong CYP3A4 inhibitor, you would use half the dose of quizartinib, which would be one tablet, 17.7 uh, milligrams during induction consolidation, and uh, then 26.5 milligrams during uh, the continuation phase. Uh, so that explains the dosing. Um, but now let's turn our attention uh, to the toxicity profile. And Justin, do you want to start us off on that discussion? Sure, happy to. Um, so in, in terms of the general toxicity profile of FLT3 inhibitors, it really differs between first and second generation FLT3 inhibitors. Mitostarin, being a first generation, um, is not as myelosuppressive in general. Um, when given in combination with 7 plus 3 chemotherapy, the setting in which it is approved, there wasn't a big difference in, toxos in toxicity profiles, if really any, between the two arms, nor was there a difference in early mortality. Minostarin, although this wasn't clearly seen in the induction consolidation phases, um, is associated with GI toxicity, and we, many of us who have used it, do, do notice that during maintenance therapy, and this has also been shown on some other clinical trials, that with continuous therapy, there can be significant GI toxicity, sometimes um, perhaps even up to half the time, I believe, in some studies requiring it to be stopped. So that is a consideration with Mindstarin. Uh, the intermittent dosing with chemotherapy is generally pretty well tolerated, though, other than just the general side effects of the, the, the induction therapy, right, which we all know. Um, the other ones, resartinib and gilderitinib, I think what's more notable is myelosuppression. And this can be seen even as a single agent, but especially in combination therapies, either, either with chemotherapy in resartinib's case or with um, in, some, in clinical trials looking at it with nanoclax-based therapies with, uh, in gilderitinib's case. And I think this is because these are type 2. They're just very potent with three inhibitors. Um, they obviously have key differences. Resartinib is a type 2 inhibitor, so it can really just shut down flip 3 wild type as well. Um, and it also hits KIT, I believe, uh, which may lead to the mild, mild suppression. In its case, in gilteritinib, hits multiple other kinases and is also known to be myelosuppressive and is also a very potent flip 3 inhibitor, but a type 1 inhibitor. Um, so the mild suppression is, is, is real, especially when you're considering 
that older patients were treated on these on this study on Quatham first um, between the ages of 60 to 75, as we discussed during the last podcast. And um, and they, there you may be particularly concerned about the increased risk of toxicity. And um, in fact, there was a slight increase in early mortality on the quartzartinib arm compared to the placebo arm on quantum first. And this was probably mostly driven by the older patient population. Uh, obviously, the overall survival benefit was still borne out and it was significant. And there was, um, you know, a about a 10% magnitude of survival benefit with resartinib. We know that. But um, myelosuppression, suppression, um, primarily neutropenia, is, is something to be aware of. And also with gilterismib and other combinations, which are now being done on clinical trials. In terms of other non-hematologic toxicities, kind of what comes to mind is probably the most noteworthy is the issue of QT prolongation with quizartinib, um, which is known, has been seen on monotherapy trials. Um, and but and on the quantum R study, there was actually more of a signal there, I believe. Um, on the quantum first study, there was a signal for QT prolongation. Um, it was modest. It, it was not um, striking, but it was real and it was notable and it is worth mentioning um, and it is on the label. Um, and it's something that certainly has to be monitored for um, and electrolytes repleted and so on. In terms of the rate, it was 13.6% on the quasartinib arm of QT prolongation. I believe that's grade three or higher and only 4.1% on the placebo arm. Um, and there were two cases of cardiac arrest on the quasartinib arm and one of those in the setting of severe hyperkalemia, but regardless, um, that was seen. Um, and two patients also discontinued due to QT prolongation. So it, it is something certainly to monitor. Um, the, the, the last thing um, with serial EKGs, and there is a, a, a baseline of serial per the package insert, and there, is, there are guidelines for how to do that, including during maintenance. And the last thing that can happen with FLT3 inhibitors, particularly monotherapy, um, and the more potent ones is the potential for differentiation syndrome, although that can be quite tricky to tease out differentiation versus progression, but there have been documented cases of differentiation syndrome with gilderizumib and unlikely to see that most likely in a chemo combination study. Um, I don't know here if you guys saw any axiom on, on quantum first, um, I'd be interested to know. Um, so I, I guess with, with, with that, I'll, I'll uh, uh, hand it back to you. Yeah, thanks, Justin. No, it's an interesting point about differentiation syndrome with the FLT3 inhibitors. It's clearly been seen and reported with gilteritinib and, and others um, active drugs. So I haven't seen or heard of it in, with mitostorum, which generally doesn't lead to remissions on its own anyways. Um, and in general, as you know, when we combine differentiating agents with intensive chemotherapy, we tend to decrease the risk of differentiation syndrome in, for example, acute promyositic leukemia, that, that was clear. Um, having said all that, we did not see differentiation syndrome with the use of quizartinib in the quantum first study. Uh, gilteritinib, uh, yes, uh, as a single agent that has been uh, reported. And so I think um, it's worthwhile being uh, recognizing that as a possible toxicity of FLT3 inhibitors in general, especially active ones and being on the lookout for differentiation syndrome, even if you're using quizartinib. Again, generally, we haven't seen it 
with uh, during the induction. And of course, you're not going to see differentiation syndrome once the disease is in remission during consolidation or during uh, maintenance. So I think that's less of a concern. Yet to add to the discussion about the myelosuppression, I, I you know, in quantum first, uh, I, I do believe there was a longer duration of low, of, uh, low counts, especially the neutropenia. Um, that signal's also been reported uh, in, uh, uh, from the precog and the Hovon study. We don't have the full results of those studies of giltritinib versus mitostorin, but the same concern about slower count recovery when you're adding in a uh, potent FLT3 inhibitor that might be uh, attacking and inhibiting other uh, kinases besides FLT3. So we, we definitely have to um, take that into account. And it makes me think about the lower or the higher, I should say, early mortality at 30 and 60 days that was reported in the quantum first uh, study in patients 60 and older. Now, I'd like to believe that some of that might be due to the fact that we don't treat many of these patients anymore with intensive chemotherapy. But at the time of the study, there really wasn't in many countries any other option other than a hypomethylene agent. Venetoclax had not yet been approved, as I, as I mentioned. Um, and having said that, as we discussed, it, um, HMA venetoclax was, uh, is not an, a great option anyways, based on uh, the clinical trial results that we've seen so far. But nevertheless, you have a patient in front of you, you need to treat them. And so there may have been patients on that study who were treated by their physician who today would not, with on quantum first, that might not be treated with intensive therapy. And I've got to believe that's true because no one really knows how to define fitness for intensive chemotherapy. Um, and I think part of it has to do with, do you have another option? But I think the point here is what you made before. If you have an older patient, regardless of age, that you think is fit for curative therapy, then the quantum first study supports the use of quizartinib there. However, we need to be cognizant of the myelosuppression that can be seen with second generation FLT3 inhibitors like quizartinib, like gilteritinib, and manage these patients appropriately. I think it's going to be interesting to take a deep dive into the quantum first data to see what was actually done uh, for uh, supportive care. Uh, the clinical trial did not mandate um, specific things, but how many sites use GCSF uh, to get count recovery at the time of aplasia? How many uh, sites used um, the azole antifungals, antibacterial prophylaxis? Um, it's going to be important to get that data. And I think it'll also be important to see who these patients really were who were older. I mean, did, is the signal for earlier mortality in patients, I'm just throwing this out there, I don't know yet, uh, with a worse performance status, um, like performance status of two versus performance status zero to one. So again, we really need to look at that data and, and uh, um, uh, so we can understand who really benefits uh, from the addition of quizartinib to intensive chemotherapy but I also think we have to expect the myelosuppression and use prophylactic antibiotics and, and growth factors. In terms of the QT prolongation, I agree with you. Um, it, it was a modest difference. Um, if the grade three QT prolongation was uh, in 2.7% of patients, let's say 3% of patients and point, with quizartinib and 0.7% with uh, placebo. Uh, so clearly higher, but you know, I'd like to point out that, remember, these were patients 
treated on a clinical trial where you had all these people overseeing what the doctor was doing, the clinical pharmacist, the investigational pharmacist, making sure the electrolytes were okay and making sure that they weren't on any other drugs that prolonged the QT and doing appropriate dose reductions if the patient was on a CYP3A4 inhibitor. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that I think we're going to need to really stress in our own practices as we bring this drug forward um, into our practice. Um, the management of the uh, myelosuppression, specifically neutropenia, and uh, the management and prevention of QT prolongation. Um, because in, in terms of other toxicities, I, I personally haven't seen um, a great difference between uh, quizartinib alone or with intensive um, chemotherapy, I'm sorry, I, I, intensive chemotherapy alone or intensive chemotherapy with quizartinib in terms of other toxicities other than the myelosuppression and the QT prolongation. The final thing I'd like to say about the QT prolongation is um, this drug has a REMS program associated with it, specifically for the QT. I could tell you the program that Justin and I both did. It's 10 slides to look at. Um, you take a 10-question survey um, afterwards, which is pretty straightforward. Um, and I would say the only thing that's in there, other than what we already know about how to manage QT prolongation, is the FDA wants the investigate or the clinicians to realize that this is one of the first drugs, might be the first drug that they're approving that is an inhibitor of what's called the slow rectifier channel in cardiac tissue. Um, and, and so they're a little bit concerned about, uh, a little bit more concerned about toxicities that might be seen down the road that weren't seen um, with other drugs that inhibit um, these rectifier channels that govern QT prolongation um, in, in the heart. Uh, so um, the thing that makes it a little bit difficult for you and me uh, to use uh, uh, is that not only do we have to do the REM certification, but our pharmacists have to do the REM certification. So, um, but the good news is you only have to do it once. You don't have to do it for every month of prescription like other, some other REM certifications where you have to get an authorization number each time. It's only once that you do it. So I think that really kind of covers um, this. The only dosing I, I didn't mention earlier to come back to it is the gilteritinib dosing, which is 120 milligrams once a day, three 40 milligram uh, tablets. That's the full dose. Again, dose reductions in the setting of CYP3A4 inhibitors down to 80. Um, one of the reasons I remember that the sponsor chose 120 as their final dose um, or the recommended phase two dose is that we have pharmacodynamic data that shows that even at doses of 80 milligrams, you still turn off the FLT3 um, autophosphorylation uh, using those plasma inhibitory assays that um, have been developed by Mark Levis. Um, and so even if you have to dose reduce from 120 to 80 with gilteritinib, you're still giving the patient what may be an effective dose. So I think we've really covered, uh, you know, the data regarding these uh, FLT3 as a target, this prognostic importance, the importance of testing. I think we've covered um, the uh, types of inhibitors that have been developed, the three inhibitors that are currently available in the newly diagnosed patients in combination with intensive chemotherapy and gilteritinib specifically as a single agent uh, in relapsed refractory disease. But the one thing we haven't talked about, Justin, is how every day the leukemia always proves to be smarter than we are. 
Um, and uh, especially with targeted therapies, you know, resistance is um, always uh, seen um, at some point. So um, can you give me your thoughts about the resistance mechanisms that are coming to light with the um, CLIT3 inhibitors, and especially the type 1 versus type 2 and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great thing to close on. Just to clarify the QT prolongation, I said 13 to 14%, but that was with quasartinib on the quasartinib arm, but that was that was any QT prolongation. I believe you said grade three was, or greater was 3% or? It, it was lower, it was 2.7. Yeah, yeah it's okay. That, that's good to know. It's good to know. Um, and we need to be vigilant and control those electrolytes um, watch the other drugs, CYPRA4 inhibitors, try to avoid them, and drugs that prolong the QT interval. So um, it, it is a signal of toxicity that we have to recognize. For sure. Um, okay, in terms of resistance, this is an area of discovery still, of course, and it does differ to some degree between type 1 and type 2 inhibitors. Um, before we talk about that, I think it's worth mentioning just the probably the most common pathway of resistance emergence with actually many of these new therapies, FLT3 so inhibitors, IDH inhibitors, and even then HMA is the emergence of RAS pathway mutations. Um, either that were already there as a subclone small at the beginning or maybe already detected or that were selected for and emerge on treatment. Um, and this is really, I think, very interesting. And we've seen so many of these patients who have gone on NHMA and then a FLIP3 or an IDH or even all three at some point and end up with this monocytic RAS mutated AML. And this is so interesting to me because when you look at the ELN risk stratification, right? RAS is not on there, yeah. right? And that's because the ELN were developed from clinical trials done with intensive chemotherapy in Europe, right? Vinish made nothing to do with the ELN. So, the, and, and the best therapy for rash mutated AML is actually cytarabine and, and chemotherapy, right? Which we have trouble giving to these older adults as we've been discussing. So I think that's really important to know. And if there's any multi-kindness inhibitors that are gonna also target RAS pathway at some point there, that's gonna be, I think, very important for older adults in the future. Um, who have that kind of Achilles heel. Obviously, if there's a P53 mutation, especially if it's biallelic, you know, that could be another mechanism of resistance, but we don't see FLIP3s occur that commonly with P53, especially biallelic, unless maybe it's a late hit driving overt proliferation progression. And so other than that, I think it really is important to focus on the type 1 and type 2, because one of the initial concerns was with, with resartinib as a monotherapy was the emergence of TKD mutations. As you know, and um, because it doesn't hit those, and you may be selecting for those, um, it may have some effects on some of the D835 TKD mutations, but really those prevent its binding, I believe, uh, by changing the, the general properties of the enzyme and its conformation and not being able to access the hydrocodipotic and, and so on for the quasartinib and other type 2 inhibitors that TKD mutations are generally associated with relapse. Uh, particularly the gatekeeper mutation, I forget the number, which really completely blocks its binding and also confers some resistance even to gilterithinib, um, which is a TK, um, which is a type 1 inhibitor. Um, that being said, I think when you're giving quasartinib such a potent foot 3 d ITD, uh, foot 3 ITD 
inhibitor with chemotherapy and getting these deep immunity negative remissions. And the TKDs aren't usually there at diagnosis. They can be, but that's rare. Both of them being there. Um, I think, I don't think, I don't know if you know this, if you really saw the, that much emergence, if any of TKD mutations that relapse. The, so, you know, and the, the other, guiltritinib, obviously there's not a concern with TKD because it hits both, um, unless it's the gatekeeper mutation. And that being said, one final point, I think, regardless of what FLIP3 inhibitor you use, um, is you can relapse with the FLIP3 mutation still there and you just have some resistance to the inhibition or it may be lost, in which case, again, there may be RAS or some other um, mutations driving the leukemia. Um, the last thing I'll say is sometimes we'll see FLIP3 mutations with an IDH1 or 2 mutation, especially an IDH1. And that's an interesting question, right, of what to do if, if it's a relapse refractory patient and you're considering a targeted therapy. My thoughts are the FLIP3 is the primary driver there. I would probably go with FLIP3 first. Actually, I would go with a FLIP3 inhibitor first, especially if it's an ITD mutation, as in most of the IDH inhibitor, I, I really all of the IDH inhibitor studies, whether it's Everstinib, Enosinib, Alutacinib, FLIP3 ITD patients really just don't respond or very few to IDH inhibition. Um, there are clinical trials, I think, using both. Um, but they don't occur that commonly together, but they certainly can. Any other thoughts there, Harry? I think it's a really interesting area and hopefully one we can make progress in with combination therapies. Yeah, no, I, I mean, when I think about the, the FLIT3 inhibitors, uh, you know, this whole argument between type 1 and type 2 and, you know, um, it, with a type 2 inhibitor um, used as a single agent when we've seen resistance, often you're seeing a FLIT3 uh, TKD mutations show up. It, it, and that doesn't even mean that we know that that's driving the relapse, but it, you know, it stands out because the drug is not active against FLIP3 TKD. On the other hand, as you mentioned, um, the leukemia is always smarter. So if it's a FLIP3 it's a, uh, type, uh, uh, type 1 inhibitor, um, uh, RAS mutations um, tend to be what we see in those patients. So, and I agree with you about the point about you know, targeting FLIT3, but let's face it, FLIT3 is a late event in leukemogenesis, right, driving proliferation. So it's hard for a differentiating agent to work if the disease is exploding in front of you. Um, and so I think we have a lot to learn about, you know, combining and sequencing um, these drugs. Um, and, and I guess that leads me to, you know, my final points here about, you know, the, the future of uh, FLIT3 inhibition. Um, I think I think it's clearly showed benefit um, in controlling the disease. Um, these uh, very potent second, first, and second I'm sorry, second generation type one or type two inhibitors are very potent. Control the disease, even as single agents can lead to remissions. Um, but they have known toxicities of myelosuppression, um, and um, the remissions are not durable. And we shouldn't expect them to be durable since we're only targeting a late event. And so. I still think we have, you know, obviously we have a lot still to do in AML in general, but also in FLT3 mutated AML, and especially in older patients where uh, who can't tolerate intensive uh, therapy. Um, in terms of looking to the future, um, it would be nice if we can get drugs like quizartinib and gilteritinib and mitostorin approved on a timeline uh, that's quicker than 10 years for a phase three study. Um, and here's where uh, prospective trials that use 
uh, FDA-approved, CLIA-certified MRD assays that predict survival or response, but especially survival, are going to be key. And, and so uh, one thing that I'm very proud of in the quantum first study is that's one of the first studies that showed that an, an MRD assay um, did correlate with long-term survival. So the depth of remission on an MRD assay correlated with long-term survival, regardless of the therapy that the patient got. And of course, there were deeper remissions with the, the study drug. So I think looking to the future, um, I'm hoping that we can satisfy that need of developing uh, these MRD assays that will allow us to develop therapies quicker for our patients with AML. Justin, what are you looking forward to? No, I think I think this that's a very important point about the MRD um, with the the flip three flip three ITD NGS assay down to ten to the minus four, less than that being considered negative, being associated with overall survival. I think that was clearly shown on quanta first. I think that should um, you know is at least one of the MRD assays assays that will emerge as really the standard of care because it really does drive therapeutic decisions gives you prognostic information, may impact your decision to do maintenance therapy post-transplant based on morpho and quantum first, um, which we've touched on previously. I think I'm also, you know, we, back to the resistance one, you know, one of the, the uh, and flip three being a late event, even though sometimes the burden will be very high, it's often usually a late event, you know, um, after the 3A, then the MPM1, then you get the flip three, or in older adults, it may be more polyclonal more NFC uh, subclonal, but it typically occurs in a normal keratype or near normal, maybe trisomy 8 leukemia, right? CH-driven leukemia, um, where it's a late accelerant. Um, but it also occurs with fusion proteins, really all of them. And the impact there, I think, as I think we alluded to, is also less clear. And one last thing I wanted to ask you about, it doesn't really matter in APL, for example, probably not as much in core binding factor leukemia, can be seen in high-risk fusions as well, in version three, six, nine translocations and MLL. I'm also not sure how much it impacts the disease there, except it's making what's already bad a little bit worse. Um, but it's hard to imagine that a FLT3 inhibitor as a single agent, of course, is gonna work in an inversion three, for example, and even with chemotherapy, it, uh, it's hard to imagine. But with the advent of MIN inhibitors um, and the MIN inhibitor trials, but and I've been wondering this: What is the impact of the FLT3 in those patients? Is it subclonal? Does it matter if you if you hit the MLL and you block the differentiation? What's the FLT3 doing? And is there a role for combination therapies and so on? Yeah, it, 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 that's a really important question. All I can tell you so far is in both uh, with Revumenib and uh, Ziftomenib, the uh, two men inhibitors that are furthest along, um, there have been complete remission seen even in patients who have uh, FLT3 ITD uh, mutations and um, other mutations that uh, drive uh, block and differentiation like uh, the IDH mutations. Now, the detail of that, um, we don't know. So the question you asked, was that just a subclone? Were these patients very proliferative? Um, I don't know yet, but it, it does harken back to the point you raised about APL and we said before, 25% of the patients with, flip, with APL will have a FLT3 ITD mutation. Um, now, those patients almost always have proliferative disease. But what's interesting there is that we get very high cure rates with um, arsenic trioxide and all transretinoic acid, even in high-risk disease, only by adding some myelosuppressive drug at the beginning. 
idorubicin in some studies, gemtuzumab azogamycin um, in others, different ways of doing that. It's almost like if you can just control that proliferative signal, then you give the opportunity for the differentiating therapy to work. So one of my thoughts about sequencing these drugs, and you brought this up, is if I have a patient like that who has truly FLT3 ITD-driven disease, give them a FLT3 inhibitor, just like you said, knock it down, and then add in the differentiating agent. Um, because if you try to do it the other way around, the disease is just not going to be controlled. But we, we need well-designed clinical trials to see if that's right or wrong, though. Very interesting. I mean, we all were trying to emulate or replicate the astro arsenic story and at least all fusion driven leukemias. And you can, any leukemia, um, you can think of IVOASA as being somewhat not as, not as good, but, but, but quite good in IDs1 mutated AML and then the role of adding it in there. And then what is the combination partner for minute yeah. begs the question, but we will see. Those studies are being designed, as you know, and launching now, and a few patients have been treated. So we have a lot to look forward to, and um, not only in uh, patients with FLT3 mutated disease, but also in clinical development uh, for patients um, with AML uh, and other subtypes in different disease states, and especially for the majority of patients that we see, those older patients who cannot tolerate intensive therapies or allogeneic transplant. A lot of work yet to be done, uh, but uh, I've really enjoyed uh, reviewing uh, the progress we've made in FLT3 ITD mutated AML. Thanks for joining me, Justin. Really been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML4. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service, or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.